This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. So you think about Revelation 7 and 9, says every tribe, every nation, and every tongue around the throne of God. And I love that because the throne is where God loves to sit down. So he must be comfortable, right? Mm. So every culture, right? Every ethnicity, right? And every language. So there we see the heterogeneity that God loves his mosaic. He's not making any one of his kids, even the ones that even don't acknowledge him that are still made in his image. He didn't make any of us to be the same. There's seven and a half billion of us and yet not even identical twins are alike. So when you look at all these different places, there's all this diversity throughout the scripture from Genesis to Revelation. There's no snowflake that's the same. There's no individual that's the same. The ecology of the world, the terra firma, works based upon bees and bugs and trees and different classifications of the ecology of God. So why when we get to this point where we start talking about human beings, do we get soft and do we run the other way? This is Where You're From, a podcast for those who believe it's important to stop and listen before we speak. Join us as we ask another Christian thought leader where you're from and discover how their life experiences and expertise, even if we may disagree with something they say, offer us an important perspective that's worth thinking about. Welcome to Where You're From. I'm Rasul Berry. Great minds think alike, or so we've been told. But what if it's different minds that help us think better? How might being surrounded by those who are different help us to not only think better, but to build better communities, businesses, and even a better church? These questions have been a driving force for Scott Welch, an international business consultant on the topics of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and he is the founder of Global Bridge Builders. Today, Scott will share with us his passion for creating communities that reflect the diversity God designed into the world, what he calls God's mosaic. And it all started in a small village in South Korea. You're listening to Where You're From. I'm from Grand Rapids by way of a village in Asia, Tongjishan, Korea, by way of Augusta, Georgia, and Hinesville, Georgia. By way of a lot of different places, my home base has always been in Grand Rapids because my family's here. But I was also an army brat, so we traveled, and that was a big part of my life. Yeah, I was about to say, like, like Korea from Georgia to, to Michigan, that's the long way. Like, how do you do that? <laughs> <laughs> so, like, what was that like growing up? Well, it was interesting because one day I was eight years old. My mom and my stepdad sit me down and say, hey, we're moving to Korea. I'm like, what is a Korea? What is that? I don't know if it's a country, if it's a thing. Nevertheless, my parents said, we're moving to Korea. Here's what's going on. Here's what it's all about. And got on this long plane ride and landed in Seoul. And then the driver brought us into Tangdishan. And I tell folks, I was not the only African-American kid there. I was the only American kid in the entire city, in the entire village. And what I love about that is my mom and dad made a very intentional effort for us to stay in the village. So we did stay on the base. 
We lived in the village. We worked around making the kimchi with the people in the village. I went to the corner store to talk with Adishi, the gentleman that owned the store, to get my Fanta Pop and my Juicy Fruit. And, and my only friends were Korean. Okay, hold, hold on. I have talked to a lot of army brats. I have never heard that before. <laughs> have you heard of other army brats who lived... No, so that what it was, Rasul, it was considered what they call a hardship tour. And so it was really strange because literally my dad made a choice for us to go there. But I was the only American kid in the entire city. So I had to learn just enough Korean to be dangerous. And they learned just enough English to be dangerous (laughs) because I stood out and it stuck out this little kid with this massive afro. (laughs) They called me, what was it? Skoshi Soul Brother Namahana, which is little soul brother number one. (laughs) And uh, I had all kinds of of treats as a result of that because the taxi cab drivers wanted to have me in their car in the Mm. store they wanted to give me special stuff i had a tailor that would make my clothes and they Mm. wanted to have me wear their clothes (laughs) right i mean it was an amazing experience for me it was two years kind of the other part of that i had asthma as a kid super super bad so much so i actually got sick in korea the only reason i didn't stay the full four years and they had to medevac me via helicopter to the 121 hospital in Seoul, where I was legally pronounced dead. Wow. And they read me my last rites. They called my parents in, said, here's what's going on. Oh, he's gosh. not going to make it. And my mom just kept praying. My dad's like, no, this is, no, he's, he's coming back. And uh, it's not like I, I didn't see anything, that kind of stuff. But they actually had to do heart massages and everything and god raised me up and then because of that my family here in grand rapids are like you know let scotty come back to grand rapids we'll take care of him and so i live with my aunts and uncles hmm. and so that's how i got back to you know here but wow. i was bit by the travel bug at that point in time and so i've never been the same how did that experience shape you i think it has shaped me in just profound ways man um, and that is the way i look at people I mean, I just, I love people. And it also, as I said, in terms of the travel, it ruined me. At 10th grade, I took a tour with a choir to Europe. Mm. Then actually my senior year, I was accepted to go to Up With People and toured around, had 98 whole families around the world, traveled with kids from 18 different countries. Okay, what's up with people? It's this global kind of song and dance group on a mission in terms of world peace, in terms of things like deep community involvement. So we went to places, Rasul, from... uh, elderly homes, like senior citizens' homes, to maximum security prisons, and we would actually do a concert, and we'd do community involvement. So we'd go into the communities, give a concert, but then we'd perform at the Spectrum or at Radio City Music Hall or before the Pope. I mean, all those different types of things. And they have 20,000 young people that that audition, and they select 500 of those. They split you up into five different casts, they call it, and you each have a different geographic path that you go for a whole year. And you stay with host families everywhere. Mm. Wow. It just further gave me this largeness of heart for people. Because mm. I stayed with folks that all they could give you was their house and their hospitality and what they could make. And then mm. I literally, in Toronto, I had a butler, my own private butler. So from everything. But in between, there's human beings. Yeah. And I just love people. And then interned in New York City at a casting agency during undergrad. And I've got an international business and then started teaching diversity, equity, and inclusion and started my company. And all that, I kind of connect back to Tang Dushan, Korea. That's amazing. The other thing that stood out when you told that story, which is just incredibly amazing, the fact that you had flatlined and were pronounced yeah. dead and then and came back. And you mentioned a resolve in faith from your parents. That's pretty extraordinary. 
was that unusual or was that a part of your upbringing in terms of that aspect of faith and God at home? It was, Rasul. Ever since I can remember that I had a memory, I was always in church from the AME church I started with from zero to 12. And then 12 to 24 was in a Baptist church. And it's ironically enough, my grandma's house was in between both of those because they were on opposite corners of each other. (laughs) And then the school that my mom principal for many years is across the street from both of those churches. Wow! And it was really the way that my mom essentially raised me because she had the more kind of preeminent role in my life. But I just was always surrounded, Russell, with such amazing family, man. I'm just blessed. I mean, from my aunts and uncles. So that was always the expectation. They always very gingerly, graciously talked about the expectations that they had for me. But always, we had lots and lots of fun. Our house was the house where the big parties took place. (laughs) And Mm. so I was the DJ. Okay, so you have your travel experience, you come home, and obviously people, that travel bug still got you. So how does that move you into college? What was that like? So I started in January. I went on campus, Albion College. They dropped me off there, and I was there for four years. Great school, great experience. I was one of 18 African Americans on the campus, but I never felt that because Mm. music was that bridge. So I was there on a music scholarship and then I didn't want to do any more classical. I'd done that for some time. They asked me to be the lead singer for the jazz band. And so I did that and that was fun, but then I wanted to start my own band. So I started one that was just a hodgepodge of people around the campus. Kind of one of those golden threads in my life is I love creating community with Mm. people. And oftentimes when maybe they're at different parts of the room, so to speak. I love bringing them together. And music and food and visual arts is just such a wonderful bridge for Mm -hmm. all those. So I started a band. We played everything from Prince to Simple Minds to the Pixies Mm -hmm. to Wham. We just played dance music, Cameo. Mm -hmm. We played everything, but you had to dance. you'll dance dance to Cameo. Yes, (laughs) Yes, you will. (laughs) No choice. No, no choice. Yeah. (laughs) Did you get a degree in business? Man, I stayed as far away from the business department as I could. Okay. That was the crazy thing. It was communications and broadcasting and then a minor in German. Now, I hear a little bit of an entrepreneurial streak in you there because you said, okay, I joined the band, but then I started my own. Yeah. When did business and entrepreneurship become a part of your story? When I met my wife, people would always come and ask us advice around for their business. And how do you do this? How do you write a business plan? At the time, she was a banker. And so we would just answer these questions. And this was in church. They'd ask us, so how do you do this? How do you do this? So we actually created a seminar, a two-day seminar, 16 hours of content together. We would just talk about how to start your business and how to write a business plan. And it was all scripturally based. And it just continued to grow and grow. And then we actually started a business that we raised money for that failed and we raised over a million dollars to get that business going and then it didn't work man it did not work so I did a corporate stint in global business I was the uh, global specialist for nutrition and wellness for a manufacturing company and so I had every country under my responsibility except for US and Canada Mm -hmm. and I think I began to see because it was an entrepreneurial company 
But then, as I began to kind of learn kind of the corporate process of product development, things like that, I began to see that I was good in a particular thing around diversity, equity, and inclusion, right? Okay. So usually you don't hear entrepreneurs saying, you know what, I got into business because of my relationship with God getting Mm -hmm. deeper. What's the connection between the two of those? How did that deepening of faith go there? I think just as I studied it, you know how to a plumber, everything's a pipe. To a hairdresser, it's about a head of hair. For me, the way I would study the word, that was just stuff that God would breathe on. Mm. And I'd see Joshua and I'd see Nehemiah building a wall and I'd see the teamwork and I'd see the, it had these business principles in it. And so I found myself really drawn to biblically based business books. Mm. And then, of course, I'd read the Silicon Valley books and things like that. But I tell you, I don't really remember when there was a time when I just dove into it. It just kind of pulled me. Mm. And then I started just really going more into it. And so it wasn't like it was this pronounced time. That was just when I went into the word, what my heart was really thirsty for, because I knew that the Lord had a, there was a way of doing business. I really believed in kingdom business. I believe there was a lot of opportunity for Christians to kind of think differently. And I began to study the Jewish model for business. And it was more of a circle than it was a line. Mm -hmm. And so it's like you're the same person on Sunday through Saturday. Yeah, I was going to say that because just because a Christian is in business doesn't mean that they're doing their business in a Christian framework. So what does kingdom business mean? What are some of the distinctives about that that make it unique? Right. I think really understanding that you have a mandate from heaven to establish God's kingdom in the earth. And that means that whatever you do, you are on assignment. So even the money that your business makes, it's about whatever it does, it has to make people's lives better. I also think that it has to make room for the gospel, right? Hmm. So there is this model that comes from this Greek orientation of business and you can separate it because it's more intellectual. Like I can be a Christian on Sunday, Monday through Saturday, yeah, it's not connected. Well, when you look at the Jewish model, it's everything you do. Mm. You can't separate water from wet. Yes. So the way that I treat my employees, the way that I also model my family and love my wife and kids, and I'm public about that love, and I'm also bold about standing for people that don't have voices. Mm. I'm also very much committed to, if I can't find it in Scripture, then I know that I really shouldn't do it. Mm. And so I just think it's one of those things where I don't separate it whenever you see me, I'm going to be the same person. And I think that's probably the biggest thing for me. There is, there is no separation. Mm. It's just like an extension of who you are. So yeah, now that makes a lot of sense. You know, I'm going to go back to this thing you said, because you talked about that first business Mm -hmm. and I've often heard business people say that they've learned more through failure than through their successes. Walk us back, because you mentioned something about raising a million dollars, which would seem to be the panacea to anything that would go wrong in a business setting. And you said that was your first kind of... That was my wife and I, our first foray into business like that. Okay. Yeah. Tell me about that. (laughs) So we actually started, it was the first African-American network marketing and direct selling company. So, and again, I don't want people to get it confused with pyramids because literally that's not the way that works, right? Right. But I noticed that the market, Russell, was missing people of color. And so we raised that money. 
We got the kits, got the products and everything. And we, by the way, had a multi-ethnic staff um, because mm. I just wanted the best. And they came in all different sizes and colors. I'm like, this is what we're going to do together. And they were with it. Okay, pause for a second. Yeah. You said something very important that I think is worth drawing out. You mentioned that the market was missing in this aspect of black hair needs. Why was the market missing that? Why was there a, a, a gap? <laughs> you know, I think there was a gap because here's the thing. The market was there, mm -hmm. but companies were not seeing it. Right. And the whole thing is you talk about one of the largest markets. It's in right. African-American hair care, right? Yes. I just prayed about it. And then all of a sudden mm -hmm. I just saw this, this niche this opportunity and okay. said, okay, well, went home, talked to my wife and said, here's what I'm thinking. And let's see if we can raise the money for it. So she's right. pregnant with our first child with Brandon. And we we're raising money essentially from the basement of our little bungalow home office. So I'd come home from work, work on the business plan and then got some days off. We'd go and have meetings and and so it was this massive niche. Sounds like a can't lose situation. It really, it was. So in looking at it in terms of multi-ethnic markets, that was where the growth was, right? Right. And so it's still there, but I think the modality that we went down, and again, I mean, there's so many things I learned in hindsight, but we've just burned through the cash so fast. Our staff was too many people. And then we needed people to understand this is a business that you have to work it's mm. not going to happen just for you. And so once we got to that, we just had burned through so much cash, got to that point. It was just like, you know what? This is not working. This is mm. not working. And we had to come to terms with that, had to let the people go. And then it got to the point where it was like, this is not it. But in closing the business is what got me into the business that I'm in now. How was that emotionally? Oh, brother. I kept a journal, by the way, during that time, and I still have it because it reminds me of where God brought me from. Mm. I remember hearing a song. She says in the song, there were times I couldn't pray. And I'd look at it. I would think, couldn't pray. What do you mean? <laughs> God's like, hold that thought. Mm. And so, brother, <laughs> there were times when that thing was imploding. I was in my basement on my face mm. and I didn't have strength to pray. I could only moan. I could only mm. groan. Romans 8. I yes. only could groan. And that was it. That's all I had. And I'm like, God, you have to interpret that because I don't have anything else. And I remember one time very clearly, he said, you are so wrapped up in the chapters of your life right now. You forget that I'm writing a novel. <laughs> and I was just like, okay, wow. And then he began to show me in the scripture, all these points where if we have actually counted people out, we would have missed the other half of their ministry. Mm. If we would have canceled Saul out, we would have never met Paul. To cancel Jacob out, we would have never met Israel. To cancel Peter out when he mm. denied the Lord and then at the day of Pentecost. Yeah. So you yeah. can't freeze people in time. And so he just began to show me example after example after example. And then to boot, which is just like, Lord, why? He, he had one of my colleagues at the time, pastor of a very large church, call and say, I need you to come and talk to our business people. I was like, this is not working. He says, that's exactly why you need to come and talk to my business people. Hmm. Because there's another degree that you've gotten from heaven in business <laughs> that you can't get in a B school. Hmm. Then a university called us and said, would you come talk to our business students? Wow. And we talked and the title was what business school does not teach you. 
And mm. we just went down the whole thing from the bank loans to the investors. How do you deal with integrity when you owe, when you've got investors? And it was really crazy sometimes, Rasul, because what we were very, very cognizant of is that the name of Jesus needs to be praised and his name needs to be above reproach where concerned Scott and Barbara Welch. So we'd say, okay, this investor just lost his money, lost her money, but we would go back to them, set an appointment with them, sit down with them and say, this is what's going on. Divvy out any discipline that you think we need, any correction you think we need, but we're going to come face you and tell you that this company you invested in is not going to work. I'm sure business school doesn't teach you that. (laughs) No. So that's kind of one of those kingdom things, right? Yeah. We got so many jaw drops. They're like, you're sitting here and telling me this. They said, you know what? Most people that lose our money, we never hear from them again. And you're Mm. sitting here telling us, telling me that this is what's going on. And you're just kind of putting yourself at my mercy. They're like, it's forgiven. And they said, by the way, let me tell you a secret. They said, we, we don't bet on the horse. We bet on the jockey. Mm. One of the guys, one of the older gentlemen said, welcome to the club. Good. Okay, wow. you got your first failure underneath your belt. Now you can actually <laughs> go and do business. And Barbara and I were just like, did we just hear that right? <laughs> so the grace of God extended over our lives. There's a story in that mm. because God kept us, Russell. He kept wow. us. Let me ask you just one clarifying question. When you're laying on the floor moaning, what was the most painful or difficult part about the failure for you? The hardest thing was saying, I really don't know the next chapter because we invested everything in that. Mm. Wow. The IRA, all that other kind of stuff. It was brother. It was all in. Mm. So we literally didn't know what we were going to do. Fast forward to post crash of this business. And I'm in church with my family, my son, Brandon in car seat at the time. Uh, daughter Brooks was just born. By the way, when she was born, we were in the labor room and I had $10.46 to my name. Wow. I remember that. I remember that. It was mm. that amount. And literally, we are so far out there. But the Bible says they that do business in deep waters, they'll see the hand of God. Mm. And I'm telling you, Rasul, man, we we'd get money in the mail. We'd hear a thud. There's groceries on the front porch. And we Mm. would not know where any of this stuff would come from. So fast forward, going back to the church service, we're in the row and it's tithing offerings time. At that time, the only thing I had in my pocket was Lent. Mm. I signed my documents, Rasul, in the corporation with a purple pen because that's my favorite color. And so that purple pen was like, that was my thing. The offering bucket's coming across. I ask people, tithe means 10th. So how do you tithe off of a unit of currency that you don't have? The smallest amount you can tithe from is from a dime. Mm -hmm. So we went from having 1046 when Brooks was born to me at that point in time on that Sunday having zero. I mean, like a zero, zero. That's not a euphemism. This is zero. Mm -hmm. I had a purple pin, though. And it was one of those things that was important to me. And David said, you know, I'm never going to give the Lord anything that didn't cost me anything, Mm. right? So you talk about a sacrifice of praise, not just praise, but a sacrifice of praise. How do you keep praising God with your hands up and you know your pockets are like empty? Mm. So I said, God, and I'm talking in my heart to him as the offering bucket's coming by. 
I said, all we got is this purple pen. This is what I have, Lord. I signed the envelope and I put the pen in the envelope and lifted my hands and said, God, we're all yours. We don't know what's going on. We don't know where we're going, but we're yours. Mm. And I know you're taking us someplace great, but I can't see anything else right now, but this pen. This is our offering as a family of praise. Going home to a refrigerator, by the way, that is empty except for when people drop groceries on our front porch. And I lifted my hands up, put the pen in, and that was it. That was it. And I looked at my sweetheart and said, God's got it, because she was crying. She She was, you know, heartbroken a little bit. And I just said, God's got us. I don't know how how this is going to end up, but I know he's good. And brother, to tell you what he's done since, it's hard to explain. I told Barbara a couple days ago, I said, honey, I find myself getting really emotional because of the abundance that he's brought into our lives and the joy of being able to bless someone, to pay someone else's bills or just help people but I remember that so if I could be in a church building and run around I would hey (laughs) because he's been so good yeah I know where he's brought us from Rasul I know it when we come back from the break Scott will share with us how he discovered what he would do next but it wasn't what he expected you're listening to where you're from If you're enjoying where you're from, would you take a moment to write a quick review and give us some stars? Podcast platforms like iTunes and Google promote highly rated shows. So a one sentence review of what this episode or show means to you and a quick five star rating will help these important stories reach more people. Thank you for your help and keep listening for more of where you're from. This episode is brought to you by smallgroups.com. Find everything you need to build, grow, and maintain a healthy, thriving small group ministry. Smallgroups.com equips you to develop your ministry model and train your leaders, to nurture spiritual growth in group members, to troubleshoot typical group problems, and also to avoid common pitfalls. Whatever your role in developing life-changing community, we have resources for you. Visit smallgroups.com today. Hey friends, my name is Jade Gustafson and I'm one of the producers for Where You From. Before we return to our conversation with Scott Welch, I wanted to share a quick teaser from our next episode with Kiara Sheard Kelly. This is Where You From. My big may not be your big. Mine was weight for me. That was an insecurity and sometimes my big mouth, but it could be whatever your insecurity is. So it could be the big feet, it could be the big eyes, the big nose or the big personality where people make you feel bad about these things because of us comparing it to what culture says is beautiful. And so I'm taking that big and it came from an experience where one of the guys that I dated, the the last thing that he could say to me was you are 
big fat so-and-so. It broke me because I didn't expect it, but it happened another time from someone else that I was dating. And I was like, you know what? This is all y'all got. This is all you can say to me. And I felt good that that was all that you could say because that speaks volumes of my character. It speaks volumes of what's on the inside of me. And whatever your big is, embrace that and be bold about it. And I became bold about it. And now I have a clothing line for curvy women. I'm an advocate for body positivity and health. And that's what big, bold, and beautiful is all about. Own it. Welcome back to Where You're From. I'm Russell Berry. Before we hit play on part two of my conversation with Scott Welch, just a quick reminder that the show notes are available in the podcast description. There you will find not only the talking points for today's show, but also a link to access a free Our Daily Bread special edition ebook, On the Shoulders of Giants, on the Our Daily Bread app. On the Shoulders of Giants is a Black History Month devotional that explores the rich legacies of famous and lesser-known African-American heroes. Just copy the link in the podcast description and paste it in your browser or visit our website, whereyou'refrom.org. That's where, Y-A, from, dot Before the break, Scott Welsh talked about his failed business venture, but he wasn't at the bottom yet. Once Scott gave everything he had and trusted God completely, new opportunities started opening up in ways that Scott never imagined. You're listening to Where You're From. I know where he's brought us from, Rasul. I know it. Okay. I don't, though. So please tell me, because now <laughs> I'm on the edge of my seat. <laughs> so Brother. you put your earthly belonging of a pen into yes. the title offering. Go home to next to nothing. So, yeah. Okay. Now we're here. So fill in right. the gap. What so, happened next? <laughs> so we, we're on, at the time, by the way, we're on federal assistance for six months, right? So the only way our kids can get medical care is through what they call My Child. So we're closing down the business we talked about. Yeah. I'm in the post office talking about a campaign just as a last-ditch effort. And I'm walking by. This is a God thing. I'm going to go get something out of the vending machine, which I rarely do. But I'm there in this building. To the right, there is an office that has the name of a company on it. And it has the name Diversity in it. Now, what I do know also is that in 93, I got my master's. And I began to teach at a university, occasionally diversity. And I kept getting really good responses. And they were like, man, Scott, would you keep teaching this? Because the student's response to you is really pretty amazing. Yeah, I'll just keep going. So you get a little trickle of money from that. I literally walk across from the vending machine into that office. They didn't know me from anybody. I said, what do you guys do here? And they said, we do diversity management with companies. I said, can I just come and volunteer my time and learn what you do? They're like, yeah, sure. And I already, again, had my master's, was teaching a little bit of diversity. And I literally began to spend eight hours a week there. And I did that for probably four to five weeks. I was just there. But I didn't know other things that were happening at the time. But one of the female partners was pregnant on maternity leave. And she said, I don't want to come back to the company. But she had this aerospace contract that she was leading. I'm at the table in a meeting. They say, hey, Scott, we don't have anybody to cover this. Would you be willing to go teach workplace violence in this aerospace company? I'm like, yeah, sure. It pays this. It pays this. We needed that money and it was more. I was like, this is a good day rate, right? 
Ended up, that contract was supposed to last for five months. They extended it for five years. Wow. And I would service that client because they kept asking me. So then they would take me into other companies. And back at the office where I was just this specialist, if you will, they're like, this is kind of crazy. Well, go over here. And I start bringing in all this business. Fast forward, I end up being actually a managing partner of that company. That you just walked into one day. I walked off the street, Rasul, essentially. I was going to my own business, get a candy bar, brother, okay? Wow. End up being a managing partner there. Then while I'm there, I begin reading a magazine. This magazine is focused around Fortune 500 diversity initiatives. I call because I might call folks up. I call and I say, hey, my name's Scott Welch and I work for this firm and I read your magazine from cover to cover. It's like the only one I read from cover to cover. And we have an assessment tool. We have a tool that I believe that you would really benefit from. And it does this, 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 and that. And I end up talking to the co-founder of the magazine. Hmm. He says, Scott, if you have what you say you have, he says, you are two years ahead of us. And so I said, well, let me fly out to New Jersey and let me just kind of show you what we have. Flew out to New Jersey, had a meeting with him and his co-founder. The magazine is everywhere at the time, right? And it still has major market share. I've come back to Grand Rapids after this three-hour meeting. And about seven days later, I get this call. I look at my phone, I see this call, and I know exactly where I was. And the guy says, hey, Scott, this is so-and-so. Have you ever thought about moving to New Jersey? I said, no, but I mean, it just is not on my radar. He said, I, I need to talk with you about something. If you would consider flying back out. I said, well, if you fly my wife and I together, we'll come on out. So we went out there and they offered me the position of vice president of benchmarking and analysis for the Fortune 500. Wow. So I work with Starbucks, Disney, ABC, CBS, KPMG, Walmart, American Express, you name it, I've worked with them. I've met all of their people. And my job was to oversee those large global analytics of their workforce, purchases, people of color and leadership, all those different things. But what I find out is even in that, some of those organizations have these big programs, but no process. So when the champion leaves, it implodes. So I end up working with them and I end up getting requested to go into these different buildings that the founders are not even being asked to come in because I understand process. And they understood ad sales, but they did not have a DE&I background. I did. And so when I went and spoke to these offices, to these heads of these organizations, that organization, they knew that I knew what I was talking about because I was grounded in metrics. Yeah, yeah. So break it down for us. So like when you talk about diversity and business, like what has been the challenge? Because clearly these folks are, are seeing something in you. Yeah. So maybe tell us about what it is that in a lot of these Fortune 500 companies that is being missed. Yes. That there's a growing awareness that, man, we need to Mm -hmm. meet this need. The real gap. So diversity, equity and inclusion is what I'm talking about. I say D and I, first of all, diversity simply describes who's there. Equity talks about people having equal access and influence no matter their title. Right. Their voice matters. They're able to contribute on a very high level and engage. And inclusion is the action, so to include, right? So we don't just want your look, we want your presence, we want your insight, your wisdom, your intellect, those things. So that's how we talk about DE&I. What they were missing, Rasul, was a process approach, a metric-based approach where they literally can treat it just like they do any other system in their organization, financial systems, HR systems, 
many people were giving DE&I a pass as this kind of social thing that's over here, but it was really much like a parsley on the plate. Right. People don't really understand parsley. It's like, okay, it's good. I hear it's good for me, but it, people are treating DE&I like that. Right. But I was taught and I learned that it frames the company, it frames the business. So the people, because they're different, bring added innovation value to the organization. Right. But when you have a programmatic type orientation around DE&I, you have lots of multicultural lunches, you got diversa beans and you got t-shirts and everybody feels warm and fuzzy, but it mm. doesn't change the business. So what they were missing and what I'm focused on is the fact that heterogeneity and diversity actually give you greater access to higher levels of innovation. So mm. new products, new services, new markets, and also a great environment where your employees can engage and they don't have to assimilate to be like anybody else. They can mm. be exactly how God put them in that organization. Gotcha. And, you know, I read one thing that you've said is that innovation happens on the fringes. It always does. Heterogeneity, different perspectives, ensure that people have different ways of looking at the same thing. And that's where you get a person looking at it from this side, another person from that side. And together, your blind spots are actually pretty mitigated and just kind of minimized because you're different, not because you're the same. So mm. studies show that when you have homogenous groups in the same room, they actually suffer from groupthink at a quicker pace and they're less innovative. Conversely, when you have people that are different, you actually have innovation that is stronger, higher, and there's books written about it, now there's studies on it. Right. Heterogeneous groups are more innovative. Okay, so how does your faith in a Christian context play into this yeah. you know, role? Because you talked about the kingdom uh -huh. business concept, yep. right? So how does the kingdom play into this? So you think about Revelation 7 and 9, says every tribe, every nation, and every tongue around the throne of God. And I love that because the throne is where God loves to sit down. So you must be comfortable, right? Mm -hmm. So every culture, right? Every ethnicity, right? And every language. So there we see the heterogeneity that God loves his mosaic. He's not making any one of his kids, even the ones that even don't acknowledge him that are still made in his image, he didn't make any of us to be the same. There's seven and a half billion of us, and yet not even identical twins are alike. Psalms 133 talks about how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity, right? It's like the oil that runs down the beard. And to me, that oil is the anointing and the beard is maturity. Notice that God commands a blessing there. In other words, he knows that it takes a little bit more for this type of unity that he's looking for. But he says, if you do this, I'm going to command a blessing. John 17, Jesus is talking to the Father and says, Lord, we're one. Make them one as well. Then it says, the love that you have for me, let it be in them. So when you look at all these different places, there's all this diversity throughout the scripture from Genesis to Revelation. There's no, there's no snowflake that's the same. There's no individual that's the same. The ecology of the world, the terra firma, works based upon bees and bugs and trees and different classifications yeah. of the ecology of God. So why when we get to this point where we start talking about human beings, do we get soft and do we run the other way? So mm. whenever I'm working with corporate clients, I don't you know, cite chapter and verse, but I'm right. always talking about 
principles. I'm talking about sowing and reaping. If you want to have a wonderful, just over-the-top workforce, uh, employee engagement, create values in your workforce of honor and things like that where people trust each other and trust you as leadership. Mm. Um, Innovation. Let's not ask who's at the table. No, that's the wrong question. Let's ask who's not at the table and let's bring Mm. them in. So I'm walking at all these principles all the time, Russell, when I talk with organizations because any good idea is actually, I mean, any God idea, it comes from the scripture. So when I walk in, I know that these principles work. Innovation and engaging your people, you know, those types of things. Yeah. So I could tell just from this combo, you're a very positive person. You have a lot of vitality, energy and positivity. And yet at the same time, you're waiting in waters that has in some aspects a pretty negative or dark past to it, right? Like I know when I think about how we got here, the fact that if you look at studies where a black person and a white person apply or they have different names and resumes, women make less than men for the same job. Yes. Talk to us about the dark side that is part of the challenge of confronting this issue of diversity, whether it be racism or sexism Mm -hmm. or other things in the workplace. And how does your faith help you understand what that challenge is? Well, one of the things I know that God's very throne is established in righteousness and justice. I start there. And one of our clients of our firm is actually North Central University. That's where they had George Floyd's memorial service in Minneapolis. Mm. I just talked to them, spent time with them yesterday. So I put it like this. I said, if you understood our history, what just happened on film would make a lot more sense. Because the history of our nation, and I talk a lot about the complicit nature of the church being involved in slavery because slavery could not have happened without the permission of the church. Apartheid Mm -hmm. could not have happened in South Africa without the permission of the church. So there we are, right? I tell people, when you look at the signers of the Declaration of Independence, 10 out of 15 people in the room there that said all men are created equal were trading slaves. And notice who was not in the room. No women there, no people of color. It's because at that time, people of color, African-Americans were three-fifths human. Mm -hmm. And women were also considered to be chattel. So if you understand that, you understand that that didn't really change. It just changed forms. So one of my books is called Plantation Jesus, Race, Faith, and a New Way Forward. And it juxtaposed the real Christ. And then it talks about Plantation Jesus as the Jim Crow of the church. So our early history mutated, became Jim Crow, mutated, became, uh, you know, it it just changed forms. And that brings us to where we are. God says forgive and those types of things, of course. But I tell people that's how we get here. And so even when we look on corporate boards or we look at the church, I mean, I even think that the language, Rasul, of white church, black church is just such fallen language because I can't Mm -hmm. find it in scripture. And so that's where I think we have um, the greatest opportunity. I understand it. I pray about it. I approach it with truth and with sobriety. I don't let the family of God off the hook because I'm a part of the family. But I also look at it through the lens of saying, okay, so now what are we going to do? Yeah. And speaking of what are we going to do, one of the things that you've done is have this organization, Global Bridge Builders. Yep. Is that part of the expression of asking yourself that question or what are we going to do and tell us about what is Global Bridge Building? No, it is, Rasul. That's my consulting firm that I started. Oh, man, it's uh, 
how old is it now? It's 16 years old now. That's when I worked at the magazine in New Jersey and came back and said, there's a lot of stuff missing for these large organizations. And so I actually mm -hmm. started that company based upon that premise, that structure, metrics, framework, that it actually informs everything your organization does. Global Bridge Builders is a corporate diversity, equity, and inclusion firm, and we work all over the world. And we're very process oriented. And the thing is too, we work with universities, we work with large churches, we work with publishers, and we work with corporations. We work with healthcare institutions and television networks. And so all that came out of this. Hmm. And Global Bridge Builders is that entity that we do our work through. Gotcha. And so the premise is, is that that's a Christocentric identity has Jesus at the center of their life and it informs everything that they are. Me as an African-American, me as a father, me as an American, me as a brother, me as a son. Everything that I am bows its knee to the superiority of Christ, right? And him being Lord of my life. You flip that over. And if I'm an ethnocentric person, then all those other things take precedence and then God is a good idea. Right. But he's not Lord. And even he is shaped by the broader yeah. concept of my ethnicity being first, which is how you can get to an idea like white supremacy there you coexisting go. with the church in the antebellum South or there Jim you go. Crow segregation, et cetera, or today. That's it. Russell. it. That's exactly yeah. it. And so they end up in very, very different places. Right. And I also mm. talk about Jesus kind of being the road, if you will. And there's ditches on both sides. Because mm -hmm. on one side, you've got this whole idea of white superiority, which is a myth, and it is an idol. But mm -hmm. if you look at U.S. history bookends, you've got this thing with slavery that's kind of the main event, right? And that's mm -hmm. not even to mention yet how completely decimated an entire population with Native Americans, right. right? But on the other side of this ditch is this myth and idol of black inferiority. Mm -hmm. That's an idol as well. Because an idol is anything that you need permission from to do God's will. Okay. So what I mean by that is, yeah, is in conversations out. where they say, well, you know, the white man won't let me do this. Or if the white culture won't let us do that. Okay, so you're getting your permission from a, a people group? Really? Mm. Or instead, is God the one that says, I've green-lighted this, you go. So you're talking about the black inferiority that's internalized from oh being yeah in a context oh yeah so you go you go to another people group first to get permission when god said go see that's something that people don't talk they about don't think about that rasul no and here's the thing it's a pride thing on both sides right. because mm. you think that you are more than you are right, right. so this is inflated opinion of yourself right right on the other side again an idol is something you need permission from to do God's will. So from the black community, they look to the white community for permission. Right. Well, God, I don't know about that because so-and-so, Mr. So-and-so won't let me do that. So again, that's where you talk about deception, right? You talk about idolatry because now you're bowing down to the opinions of man at that mm. altar. And then you're saying that God is not big enough and that when he made you, he made you to struggle. Mm. And that he made wow. you so that you had to be subservient. Right. And that so when you internalize your own oppression, you don't have to be oppressed anymore because it kicks in automatically. That's what Carter G. Woodson talked about all the time. Yeah. 
shout out to Cardi G Woodson who started Black History Week, which Come became on. Black History Month. <laughs> right. Uh, the miseducation of the Negro. There you go. I'm not saying, by the way, that racism doesn't exist. I'm saying sure. it, it is yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yep. What I am yep. saying is, is that it impacts African-American, the black community, because we as a culture tend to study our deficits and not our assets. Mm. We wow. spend so much time talking about what we don't have. So all of our attention is based upon that. And what you focus on gets bigger. Mm. Hmm. Right? Magnify yeah. the Lord. Okay, I'm going to magnify him, right? He gets larger in my consciousness and in my heart of hearts. But if I actually am consistently looking at my deficit, guess what gets bigger? The deficit right. itself. And God's saying, when I put you on the earth as a group of people, I didn't say oops. I said, that's good. Right. Oftentimes, we've had these two threads in black history where there's more of the focus on changing the systems or more of a focus on empowering ourselves, you know, and I'm hearing you talk about both uh, in this idea of being a bridge builder. Yeah. Like, do you have to pick between one or the other? And if not, how do you do both? No, it's both and right. I'm a Christocentric ethnoconscious believer. Just like Paul identified Paul, a servant, the apostle of Jesus Christ, his name, his heavenly covenant standing, and then everything else he was. Scott, a son of the king right? A child of God. And I'm also African-American, those things. I think what happens is, particularly in these conversations, where you've got, let's say, even African-Americans talking in another room or in, in a broader mosaic context, one of the things, and just people in general, what we want to do is we want to become colorblind. I was just talking t- about this yesterday. And it's interesting because I said nowhere else in our modern vernacular is blindness considered a blessing. Hmm. It's a, li- it's a liability. It doesn't mean you can't make yeah. beautiful music. Hello, Stevie Wonder, Ray Charles, hey, right? Yes, Jose Feliciano. Yes. That's cool. But it's right. not considered a blessing until we get to this politically correct ideology that says, I don't even see color. Well, but the thing is, God does. Mm. God sees me. He made me right. African-American on purpose. And I love this chocolate skin I'm in. It's not mm-hmm. a mistake. It was his dream. Mm. I didn't come here having any deficit in terms of my ability to accomplish his will for my life. Mm. I came equipped. I'm put in the earth as a, as a solution to a problem. Wow. Whatever he thinks that is. So I'm like, how can we not have come here to the earth with, without answers? We actually come out of the solution himself. Mm. That's powerful. So bring this all together from the American yeah. corporate culture, right? Cause this is, what you kind of do and and are focused on it. How does all that inform what you do? Man, every, every, I was talking about Ubuntu to a bunch of lawyers yesterday. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Ubuntu is I am, you know this, I am because you are, right? And so every single day, Russell, when I walk into corporate clients, those principles are what underscores my work. I'm Mm. always talking about the kingdom, whether I'm talking about it in supply chain and saying, you know what? You need to look at your suppliers who you buy from and consider additional suppliers. And I'm saying, you don't have to get rid of the ones you have, but I'm saying there's value you're missing because everybody in your supply chain is owned by a person that looks just like you. And again, the rules of heterogeneity say you get better options if you broaden your perspective. And you can only do that through other people that don't look like Mm. you. And I'm coaching a senior leader of a company that has $17 billion in revenue. 
when George Floyd was killed, the founder said, you know what, we need to make a statement. And, and he calls me, says, Scott, I need you to help me walk through this stuff because we know we have to do something, but we don't know how to do it. I'm going to send you a letter that I wrote to my employees, all 10,800 of them, by the way. He says, what do you think about that? So now put it out there, Scott. Can you help me help them? Mm. Can you help us as a corporation walk through this to get to that point? Because we want to lead in this area because we believe that we've not been very vocal in this space. That's why I know it's God. That's why I know Mm. I have his help because the things that I'm able to do, I know that God is helping me with the wisdom that I have to, to have to give these leaders wisdom. I know that God is helping me. Wow. And you know what I mean? So yeah. every single day I work in this space, everything I do that I've seen is kind of this golden thread. I love bringing communities together. Mm-hmm. And, and the further apart they are, I really love being in the center of those conversations to bring them together. I love honoring our young people because they are so close to God's heart. And mm. so to me, it all is kind of all a part of the same thing. I tell people, mm. quit trying to go to these goosebump events where you can kind of check this box off. You feel good in these foot washing services and you get up not changed. Mm. Notice that Jesus walked with them for three years. Yeah. So the dust on their feet told the story. If we're going to have these foot washing services, we have to actually walk with each other. They had history. He had history with them. We need history. And so the whole idea of unfractured is like, why don't we just understand each other's stories? It makes God smile. He didn't leave it as an option. He gave it as a commandment, by the way. It's not optional. We need to get along and we need to act like family. So let's have the hard conversations. Let's do the work on the other side of this thing is just a beautiful mosaic, the character, the face of God that we express in our unity because we're not good apart from each other. We are actually better together. And that's what it gets at. That's so good because I'm a little concerned right now about Mm. our cultural moment where these things have become so uh, trendy and acceptable. If I hear another person say, oh, we just need to have the conversation. <laughs> and it's like, yes. you know, we need to do more than have a conversation. We do, man. You know what I mean? Like, we need to change some stuff. Thank we you. We need to have some accountability. Bingo. And I love your process orientation and analysis of, like, at, you know, with anything else, we look at the scoreboard, right? Yes. And, and it's like, you know, I'm an Eagles fan. It's like, Come I don't on. go, well, you know, they had some good conversations this week. No, did they win the game? Bingo. <laughs> That's you know? my point. And we give each, yeah. we see, we give this whole thing around diversity and God's mosaic. We give it a pass. Yeah. We're pursuing the goosebumps, but we're not pursuing his face. Yes. Because mm-hmm. his face leads us into obedience. Goosebumps leads us into ourselves. Why do you think we do that? Why, why, why go for the goosebumps? Because we love comfort. Not, mm. We love comfort more than we love his character. Might be an idol for us, huh? It's an idol. Comfort. Brother, it is. Comfort is an idol for the church, which is so ironic because why would Jesus send us a com- the comforter? Because he knew that we would be in uncomfortable situations. Mm. So yeah. we go with this man-made quilt called be around everybody that's just like you. Listen to radio mm. that thinks just like you. Go to a church where everybody looks just like you. God's like, you know what? You missed the point. And whereas we separate yeah. on based upon where well, you're this color or you are, you dip, we dunk, you sprinkle. Right. You know. Right. So we need to stop trying to make each other be like each other. And I always say, you know, we can still be unified without being uniformed. 
Mm. Right. That's good. Yep. Actually, our our power, Russell, is the fact that we're different. Mm. We've got to become comfortable in that. The fact that we don't look the same, we don't like the same music, we don't maybe worship the same. That's actually God's beauty. All right. So I'm just going to try to have you wrap all this up. Yeah. So when I think about that eight year old mm-hmm. in Korea. Right. And you look at yourself now. What would you say? were the the seeds that were planted then that have now borne this incredible fruit around the world? I think, first of all, I was always affirmed as a young black boy. So a strong Mm -hmm. sense of identity. I've known who I am. I was never taught about my deficits, first of all. Mm -hmm. I was told that I could do anything, right? And I was surrounded by black men and black women that always told me that. And they were doing things to prove it. They just weren't talking on a porch. They were rocking the house and doing different things themselves. So Mm. I was in a household where we understood even being an African-American, what that meant. And they would go and and walk across the Edmund Pettus Bridge. Some of them participated in the MLK march in those things. We had people that were looking at different parts of our black identity, right? Then you couple that with one of the earliest men in my life, just men of God, was my pastor, Lyman Parks, who was the first black mayor of Grand Rapids, Michigan. Mm. And he was one of my mentors. He always instilled in me. He always had me doing stuff in church and reading the Easter poems and stuff like that. So I was really having this community surrounding me saying, Scott, you're going to make it and you're going to do something. You're going to do stuff to impact lives of others. So that was important because it was a good establishment in my identity, right, early on. But then there's also this point where my mom would say, you know, hey, it's not a function of if you're going to, uh, to volunteer, it's where you're going to volunteer. I was always taught to give service, to provide service where there's no money changing hands. It's just because you serve, right? Mm. You bless. That's what you do. And mm. so that whole part of it, the part that it's mm. global, right? When you travel around the world, you see poor is poor, rich is rich, broke is broke, beautiful is beautiful. When they cry, I cry. When they smile, I get that. You don't have to speak my language. I know what that means. I know what it looks like. You were made in the image of God. Mm. It just kind of fast forwards, right? And I was Mm. always taught you never reach down to someone. You always reach across, right? Mm. No matter what station in life, don't freeze people in time because they got a better day. They got a chapter, right, as well. Mm. And so that was one of those things. And then from a business standpoint, The economy runs off of small business and it also runs off of large business. And for organizations to really be a part of this economy that we've never seen before, right? That things are happening in nanoseconds and we're doing business in Bill Gates' words at the speed of thought. Mm. If businesses don't understand that there is a growing population, when you think about it, again, studying our deficits as African-Americans, we have $1.3 trillion in disposable income. I don't really consider that to be a deficit. Now, what we might spend it on is a little Mm -hmm. bit different at times, but I can say that of any people group. But we're not broke, right? And so helping our clients to understand these are markets that you better talk to because if you don't, you do so at your own peril because there Mm -hmm. is an organization that will talk to them, right? That's right. And so all this stuff comes together that it really is creating, again, God's mosaic and God's allowing me to help leaders become smarter and run their companies and their boards and their supply chains differently because of Mm -hmm. all the stuff that I started learning about when I was eight years old. And when I go into organizations, I'm not as much paying attention to the senior leadership. I'm actually paying attention to the people that it it really will affect long-term, the people working on the production line, 
the people that are working and serving the meals, if it's hospitals. My focus is on them because mm-hmm. if I can do something that by God's grace impacts their lives, it's only going to help the senior leadership because happy mm-hmm. employees make happier customer interactions mm-hmm. and everybody wins. So that's how I approach all this. We all have history, and that history matters. Scott has shown us how our history doesn't have to be something that divides us or gets ignored. But it's all a beautiful part of God's great mosaic that we get to be a part of by building bridges and creating diverse, equitable, and inclusive communities. You're listening to Where You're From. I'm Rasul Berry, and if you'd like more information about Scott Welch, you can find a link to his business, Global Bridge Builders, in the show notes, which are located in the podcast description. The show notes not only contain the talking points for today's show, but also details on how to access the Our Daily Bread special edition ebook on the shoulders of giants. Find this link in the show notes or by visiting whereyou'refrom.org. That's where, Y-A, from. I'm Russell Berry reminding you, it's not just about where you're at, it's also about where you're from. This show was produced by Mary Jo Clark, Ryan Clevenger, Daniel Ryan Day, and Jade Gustafson, and was engineered by Gabrielle Boward and Kevin Burgess. I also want to give a quick shout out to Sloan and Maricela for their help in supporting and promoting where you're from. Thanks, y'all. Where You're From is part of the Voices Collection from Our Daily Bread Ministries.